Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, page 1,230 in the Pew Bible, 1,230, John chapter 7. I'll read verses 10 through 15, and then skip ahead to my text, which is 37 through 39. First, uh, John chapter 7, verse 10 to 15. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but, as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And then moving ahead to verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, our text begins with the words that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Jesus had been there for a few days. He first came secretly because he didn't want to cause uh, uh, any undue attention to himself. The Jews were planning to kill him. But uh, nevertheless, uh, when things were Right When conditions were right, that he felt he could safely get up and teach, he began to teach and he taught from day to day during the feast. But then on the last day, which is called the great day, the most important day of the feast, he gets out and gets up and declares something with great vehemence. He he cries out. Well, we want to look at that cry today when he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what's this great declaration that Jesus announces on the last day, the great day of the feast, you know, saving the best for the last? What is this that he, he shouts with such vehemence? Well, to understand it, we need to understand uh, some of the context which is not found in the Bible. Uh, scholars have uh, studied this uh, uh, matter quite extensively, and uh, I rely heavily on uh, D. A. Carson and his commentary on the Gospel of John. But what scholars have discovered is that during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's called, a seven-day feast, uh, one of the great uh, uh, three great feasts of Israel, when all uh, Israelite men, 21 years and older, were required to go to Jerusalem on this Feast of Booths that remembered the fact that when they were in the wilderness, they lived in in booths made out of branches of trees and so forth. Uh, 
During this feast, there was a ceremony practice that had not been prescribed by Moses, probably wasn't instituted until after they came back from Babylonian captivity. But uh, the priests, the rabbis, and so forth decided that they would uh, add to this feast some pageantry, some uh, ceremony. And the ceremony was this, that once a day, at the beginning of the day, uh, of the seven days of the feast, the high priest would leave the temple compound and walk to the pool of Siloam, uh, mentioned uh, elsewhere in uh, the Gospels, as one of the places where Jesus performed a miracle. But uh, the high priest would go to this pool with a uh, empty uh, jar. He would fill the jar with water, and then he would walk back to the temple. And this uh, turned out would become a great procession. People would follow him to the pool. People would line the streets to watch him go and then fall in behind him on his way back, follow him uh, back to the temple. When he got to the temple, he would walk with this jar of water around the altar three times. Or Excuse me, he, he would walk around it once. Um, a, a choir would sing uh, three times. Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. There would be trumpet blasts uh, proclaiming uh, this is a great occasion. And then at the height of the ceremony, the priest would pour the water on the altar uh, that, so that everybody could see him doing that. Now, they, they did this ceremony, this man-made ceremony, every year in the temple uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, they did it for two reasons. They did it to remember something, and they did it to look forward to something. They did it to remember the fact that God had given them water in the wilderness. You recall that uh, when they came out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness on several occasions, they were without water and they were grumbling, and uh, God, through Moses, supplied them with water. On one great occasion, Moses stood on a rock and struck the rock. And we're told that the rock represents Christ. And out of Christ comes this stream of water that uh, uh, supplies the needs of uh, man and beast in the wilderness. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that the rock is Christ and the water represents the blessings that flow from Christ Uh, Water is especially associated with the Holy Spirit because right in the beginning of creation, the Spirit hovered over the waters. But uh, not only that, but the water is for cleansing and it's the Spirit who cleanses us. And so Moses uh, mixed uh, blood with water to baptize things, sprinkle things to make them clean, the articles of the temple and uh, the people as well. Uh, Water is associated with anointing and the the anointing of the Spirit and uh, so uh, they, the, uh, the water in the desert represents uh, spiritual blessings coming to us when Christ is struck. When uh, he struck, when he uh, is uh, beaten, then blessing comes to the people, the blessings of the Spirit. And so this water ceremony during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, this water ceremony remembered the giving of water and the giving of blessing to the people of God. And so they would give thanks to God in remembrance of the water of the wilderness. But it was not only in remembrance, it was also in anticipation. The ceremony anticipated greater blessing to come. 
because Isaiah the prophet had uh, spoken often about uh, water in the future and the need to come to God to receive the water of blessing. And Jeremiah or Ezekiel the prophet uh, prophesied about a new temple and out of that temple, from the presence of God in the temple, would flow a river, a river that would get deeper and wider as it went out into the world. And wherever it went, it would make the world fruitful and abundant with life. And this was, of course, a, a, a prophecy of a spiritual blessing flowing from the presence of God uh, out into the world to make the world a beautiful place again, alive with, with life from God. It's a prophecy of Pentecost, when from heaven, the, the temple of God, from his presence, the spirit flows out and flows out now to every tongue and tribe and people and nation, bringing the blessing of God. And so they understood that there were prophecies in Isaiah. Isaiah 12, verse 3, for example, you will draw water from the well of salvation, or Isaiah 55 that we read earlier, he, where he invites everyone who thirsts to come and drink from the water. Or Isaiah 58, verse 11, where Isaiah uh, predicts what uh, the future kingdom will be like. And he says, you shall be a, like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Well, the people understood these prophecies and uh, Ezekiel's prophecy of a river of blessing flowing from the presence of God. And they they did this water ceremony uh, as a way of saying, we're looking forward to that. Well, on the seven days of this particular uh, feast that Jesus is attending, the high priest has been doing this water ceremony. And the people have followed him to the water and followed him back and watched him pour it out. And on the last day, it's been performed for the seventh time. And then Jesus says, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, you can sense an urgency and, and perhaps even a bit of a frustration in Jesus' voice as he does that. The urgency with which he cries indicates his disappointment with the people. They were so caught up in the, the pageantry of a man-made ceremony that they had lost sight of the, the meaning of God's provision in the past and the prophetic meaning for the, for the future. He wants to awaken them and say, if you are really thirsty for water, then come to me. I am the fulfillment of the water from the rock in the desert. He had already at the, uh, at the well in Samaria uh, said, uh, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will come in him a spring of water welling up unto eternal life. You know, Jesus uh, uh, had in John 6 said, I'm the true manna. Uh, manna was given in the desert. And now he's saying, I'm the true water. Uh, the water that was given in the desert, that was me. Uh, manna represents the Word of God. Uh, the water represents the Spirit of God. God gave His Word. He gave His Spirit. Uh, he gave Jesus Christ to them by Word and Spirit in the wilderness. And, and now the fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, and He is the one through whom the Spirit of God will come and work in our lives. And He's urging them, 
stop looking to this man-made ceremony and, and all this uh, pageantry that you, you're so enjoying and, and realize that I'm here. You're, you're, you're lost in the, you can't see the forest for the trees, you know. You're so lost in this ceremony that you don't realize that its fulfillment is standing in your midst. And so he, he extends this great invitation to them. Now, John adds to uh, this that uh, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. When he says, come to me for water, uh, Jesus is saying, come to me for the Spirit. And then he adds this curious statement. He says, uh, the, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was not yet given, or the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified? Certainly the Spirit has been around for a long time, hasn't he? Uh, the Spirit was present at creation, hovering over the waters. And uh, the psalmist says that it's the Spirit that breathes life into the creatures and breathes life into us as well. It's the, the Spirit of God that made to human beings alive. When God breathed on us the breath of life, he, he used the Spirit to make us alive. And when God takes his spirit away, then uh, uh, the animals uh, die, according uh, to the psalmist. Uh, also, we, we read in the Old Testament that uh, the talents of those people who made the tabernacle in the temple, their, their skill in working with uh, fabric and, and metal and gold and silver and precious stones and so forth, all the, the artisans' skills were gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit uh, was given to the prophets to enable them to proclaim the Word of God. They were inspired by the Spirit. Old Testament saints were born again of the Spirit. Their hearts were circumcised by the Spirit, no less than New Testament saints. And uh, in the Old Testament, the, the presence of the Spirit is synonymous with the presence of God. The psalmist says in 139, verse 7, uh, Where shall I go from your Spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence. They knew about the Spirit. The Spirit uh, was present among them because God was present among them. And uh, even in the New Testament, before Pentecost, we have uh, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Mary and uh, enabled her to conceive. And uh, the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove at the anointing of Jesus. So how can it be said that the Spirit had not yet been given? Well, although the Spirit was present and active in the Old Testament and in the New Testament prior to Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, which was after Jesus was glorified and what John is referring to here, is a much richer and fuller ministry of the Spirit. You know, there are lots of people with whom uh, we are acquainted. Uh, for example, there's a, a cashier in one of the grocery stores in town that I uh, uh, greet her on a regular basis. I'm acquainted with her. We engage in a little small talk, but I can't really say that I know her. I'm I'm acquainted with her. But uh, I would never say that about my wife, that I'm merely acquainted with her. We've uh, been married for going on uh, uh, 49 years later this year, and uh, uh, although there's always a little mystery in husband-wife relationships, nevertheless, I would I would not say that I'm merely acquainted with her. I would say I know her, and uh, there's a, a deeper awareness, and and that's that's what uh, is uh, being accomplished when the Spirit is finally poured out after Jesus is glorified. That 
The Spirit enters into us in a new and intimate way so that we begin to know God in a, in a much deeper and more profound way. No longer are we merely acquainted with, with God uh, and uh, that he's around so that we can see his, the evidence of his work and so forth. But now uh, he enters into us in a new and wonderful way. Pentecost moves us from a, a relationship of acquaintance and a relationship of benefits into a profound, intimate relationship of fellowship and love. Fellowship and love with the Father and the Son through the indwelling of the Spirit. What's new in Pentecost is that we become temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is made possible because Jesus is the first glorified human being in the flesh and therefore the first human being with whom God can have intimate communion and fellowship. Although uh, Adam was for a time sinless uh, when he was first created, he was like Jesus uh, in the wilderness. He was tempted. Uh, he was on trial. He was uh, under probation to see how he would handle temptation and and we know that Adam failed, and because Adam failed that uh, that trial, which uh, Jesus was later successful uh, in enduring in the 40 days in the wilderness, uh, because Adam failed, God had to keep mankind at a distance. But now, in Jesus, after his death and resurrection, there is a human being who has passed the test, who has become glorified, who is perfect in every way, the first human being in the history of mankind with whom God can have intimate communion and fellowship. And because the glorified Jesus Christ is the first human being who has, uh, who's qualified to have intimate communion and fellowship with God the Father, when he ascends to heaven, he receives from the Father the Spirit of God in a new and powerful way, in a way that no human being has ever experienced the Spirit before. Jesus received the Spirit when he was glorified. But here's the glorious good news, because you who believe in Jesus are united to Jesus you share in everything that he has. And when he receives the Spirit from the Father, then he can immediately pour out that Spirit on the church. And even though we personally in ourselves don't qualify to be temples of the living God, nevertheless, because we are in Christ, because we are counted righteous for his sake and, and united to him through faith, we can have what he has. And so we, too, receive the Spirit of God. That's what John is referring to, and he says here, Now the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But Jesus is glorified, and as soon as Jesus is glorified, he receives the Spirit. As soon as he receives the Spirit, he pours out the Spirit at Pentecost upon the church. And we now live in the age of the Spirit. This is uh, the glorious wonder of, uh, of Pentecost. Uh, to uh, to have this uh, spirit and have this uh, fellowship. Uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And uh, now we, we know him. We're not just acquainted with him. John writes, uh, We have fellowship, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Uh, this is the glorious good news of the New Testament era, that 
we now have fellowship with God in an intimate and, and personal way. Now, why is this so important? Why, why do we need to, uh, to understand that, that this has uh, taken place? Well, it, it teaches us that the heart of Christianity is the heart. That at the heart of Christianity is a relationship of love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that He has given us. We're meant to have a loving relationship with God. You know, oftentimes, because of the history of controversy in in the church, uh, we emphasize sound doctrine and the need for sound doctrine. And some of our church fathers have actually uh, been martyred in defense of sound doctrine. Guido de Bray, who wrote the Belgian Confession, uh, gave his life in defense of sound doctrine. And and that's important. And, and they weren't wrong to take those uh, those stands and, and sacrifice their life for sound doctrine. But sound doctrine is not the the end be all and end all of, of the Christian faith. It's a means to a greater end. It's so that we might know God and and come to love Him for who He is. Sometimes we uh, we emphasize ethical behavior as if that's what it's all about. And certainly ethical behavior is important. And as we'll hear uh, Lord willing this evening, uh, it is absolutely necessary that that we. We strive to do good works. But again, that's, that's the fruit of a, a, a relationship, a relationship of love. You know, John writes in his uh, first epistle, though you have not seen him, you love him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We're meant to have a loving relationship, a loving relationship that, that warms the heart. That's what, what this is all about, the pouring out of the Spirit of God so that we can know God and love God and experience God. Now, we need to be careful not to make an idol of experience. That's what our culture does uh, uh, and uh, even some parts of uh, Christendom uh, make an idol of uh, ecstatic experience or uh, a, uh, a mystical a mountaintop experience as if that's what this is all about. And although there are times uh, in the Christian life where God may give you uh, an experience of, uh, of uh, a mountaintop emotional experience, I don't believe he he does that all the time or it's meant to happen all the time. But rather, our love for God should especially be manifested in our love for one another. That's really where we're meant to experience the love of God, in our love for one another. Think of First uh, uh, John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love for God is, 
is measured by and experienced in our love for each other. And if we don't have love for each other, we really don't have love for God. Or again in 1 John 5 verse 1, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of the Father. In other words, if we truly love God, we will love one another. So I invite you to, to test your, your love for God this morning and ask yourself, are there, are there people sitting around you today, members of your church, that you really don't like <laughs> and who you don't want to be close to and, and you don't want to be near to? Are there people who you disdain and despise? Are there fellow Christians who you would be happy to never see again? People who, who you do your best to avoid, especially avoid eye contact with them. Do you choose your seat in church in order to sit as far away from them or others as possible? Are there people that you really don't like? Uh, that is not a good indication of whether you love God, that you love God. Uh, if, if that is the case, you, you could be deceiving yourself. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel or live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of reconciliation. And so he describes, he describes what a life that is lived in a, a manner worthy of the gospel is. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live in humility. Humility toward one another. Consider others better than yourself. It is to, to live in gentleness and patience with one another. Not angry, not bitter toward each other, not resentful of one another. But also in bearing with one another in love. Of course we're going to offend each other. But we, we put up with that. And we love each other in spite of the offenses given. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the unity is not of our making. It's of the Spirit. The Spirit has united us to each other. We belong together. The Spirit that of God that lives in you, lives in the person sitting next to you, lives in the person sitting on the other side of the church, lives in the person who's not able to join us this morning, but is one with us in the faith regardless we are united by the Spirit, and we're to keep the unity. We're to maintain it. How? In the bond of peace. And biblical peace is not merely the absence of hostility. Biblical peace is the presence of reconciliation. Of saying, what's keeping us apart? Let's deal with it. Let's, let's get rid of it and, and overcome it. Let love cover a multitude of sins. When you receive the Spirit of God, it not only gives you life, it not only regenerates you, it not only gives you spiritual gifts, but it gives you fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and it gives you 
a relationship of peace and reconciliation with fellow believers. And if we truly love God, we will love those who have been born of God. In Revelation chapter 21, there is the vision of the John has of the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven uh, as a bride prepared uh, for the groom. Uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem is is the, the dwelling place of God and it's going to come down on the earth and the earth is going to be transformed. That's our future. And then in the next chapter, there's an invitation to you to come and live in that city. It says there, the spirit and the bride say, come and let all who hear say, uh, let, let all who hear say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Saying, come, come take the water of life, which is offered without price. Christ paid the price. Yes, everything costs, but Christ paid the price for you. And now the water of life, the Spirit of God is there. And all who, who come and drink will be citizens of that glorious city in the future. But all who refuse will be cast out into the outer, outer, outer darkness. Outside, it says, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But inside, inside are those who respond to the call, who say, if anyone is, let the unrighteous man forsake his way and let him come. And God will show pardon and mercy. Come to the waters and drink of the Spirit. Christ is the source of life. He says to us this day, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious invitation of Jesus. We pray that by your Spirit you would impress upon our hearts the need to forsake the way of evil and to come and drink deeply of the water of life that is found only in Jesus Christ. Direct our faith to him, and may we receive from him all that we stand in need of, both now and for all eternity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.